Thank you for listening to the Calvary Monterey podcast. Please visit calvary.com to learn more about our church. And visit nateholdridge.com for additional Bible teaching from our lead pastor, Nate Holdridge. Teaching today is our lead pastor, Nate Holdridge. All right. Good morning, everyone. It's great to see you guys and to be with you. Let's uh, take out our Bibles and turn to uh, Psalm 15. Psalm 15. Uh, If I haven't met you uh, before and you're new to the church over the last few weeks, my name's Nate. I'm the long-lost lead pastor of this church. Been on vacation for the last three Sundays and uh, have uh, just had a great time and uh, feel very refreshed and excited about this next uh, academic year that God has uh, in front of us. We've been going to uh, Lake Tahoe for the last, I think, 15 years as a family, just kind of doing the same thing every year. Sometimes people ask me, like, what, what do you do while you're there? Uh, a typical day involves getting up before the family. For me, I like to read my Bible a little bit, read some books that I'm in at the moment, pray a little bit. And then after that, I go on a run or a hike. I call it a a calorie abatement run because we eat so much stinking food while we are away. Our family actually packs this huge bin. It's it's blue. It's the color blue, blue. And we refer to this blue bin all year long. We fill it up with all the things that you're just not supposed to put into your body. And it's depressing to just watch as the days tick by to see the contents just going down so dramatically and so quickly. And uh, so I'll do that and then I come back to the house and we pack it up usually on a typical day and head to the beach. We bring a couple paddle boards and just sit on the beach and uh, read books. If you've ever been to Tahoe, you know that it's snow melt, and so it's super invigorating to get into the water. And so, it, praise God, we're past the age where we have to keep our kids alive in the water. They're good on their own. And uh, so Christina and I are usually just chilling, and then we go home in the evening, we get cleaned up, and we hang out together Uh, as a family, and we just repeat that over and over and over again until we're so sick of it, we can't wait to come back to ministry and uh, life here in Monterey. So uh, it's been uh, great to be gone, but great to be back. Uh, Today I'm going to continue our study in the Psalms. The pastors and I have been teaching through continuing our study in the Psalms, and today we're in Psalm 15. I'm going to call this teaching a holy self-examination Uh, But I'm going to teach today, I normally teach from the English Standard Version, it's a great word-for-word translation, but uh, the New Living Translation is very faithful with this chapter, and I think helps express uh, the contents really well in a little bit more simplified English for us than the ESV does. So I'm going to read it to you in the New Living Translation, teach it to you today from that translation. So if you've got your phone, you can turn to the NLT, but I'll put it on the screen uh, for you as well. And you could follow along in your ESV if you'd like. But this is, it says, a Psalm of David. And David writes this. He says, who may worship in your sanctuary, Lord? Who may enter your presence on your holy hill? Those who lead blameless lives and do what is right, speaking the truth 
from sincere hearts. Those who refuse to gossip or harm their neighbors or speak evil of their friends. Those who, verse four, despise flagrant sinners and honor the faithful followers of the Lord and keep their promises even when it hurts. Those, verse five, who lend money without charging interest and who cannot be bribed to lie about the innocent. Such people, David writes, will stand firm forever. Lord, we come to you today, and I'm very thankful for this song. And I, I pray, Lord, that this prayer and the mood of it, the spirit of it, this desire to look within, to give an accounting of our lives, to, to think through and examine our progress. I pray, Lord, that this would be in a non-critical or condemning way, but a grace-oriented, spirit-filled, gospel-saturated way, a very regular part of our lives. Lord, thank you for the hope that we have in you of growth and change and sanctification. And so, Lord, I pray that you'd use this passage today to help us to be a people who regularly with your help and spirit and hope, self-examine in our lives. So we pray for that today and ask that you'd help us to understand this passage. In Jesus' name, amen. What kind of person experiences the living God? That, I think, is really the question of this psalm that we just read together. What kind of person, not just positionally knows, but experiences the living God working in their lives? Is it the religious person, the person who through ceremonies and rituals and liturgies uh, has a feeling of holiness because of what they're exposed to? Is that the person that experiences the living God? Is it the morally upright person? a person who has an inward code by which they live life and from which they do not deviate? Is that the person that experiences the living God? Or probably most popularly in our community, is it the spiritual person who experiences the living God? Someone who meditates and prays often and goes out into nature for times of reflection and thought and solitude. Who is it who experiences tangibly in their lives the living God? I think that that is the question that this psalm seeks to answer. David doesn't ask the question exactly like that. Look at verse 1 with me to see the way he phrases it. He says, who may worship in your sanctuary, Lord? Who may enter into your presence on your holy hill? Now, as a reminder to all of you, as we read through this psalm, the sanctuary in the time of the psalms that David was alluding to was Israel's temple on God's holy hill of Jerusalem. So he's thinking about this structure. He's thinking about this building that God said that he would dwell in and that he would fellowship with his people in. 
This temple got its start in the wilderness after they were set free from their captivity in Egypt during their wilderness wanderings on their way to the promised land. And God had prescribed it. He told them how to build this tabernacle or this tent. And then once it became a permanent fixture, once they were brought into the land, they eventually turned it into a physical temple where God would meet with his people. So when David asked these questions, who may worship in your sanctuary? Who may enter into your presence? What he wanted to know was what kind of people experience the living God. And as he asked this question, his prayer or his psalm went on to answer his own question. I don't know if you counted as we were going through the psalm, but he listed 10 attributes of the person who has fellowship with God. Here's a sampling of David's answer. He said, they live blameless lives. They have sincere hearts. They refuse to gossip or speak evil. They admire the right people. They keep their promises. They are routinely jealous and are routinely generous. And that's just a sampling of all the things that David mentioned. In other words, the person who experiences the living God, they are a pretty amazing person. And because of this, as we look into this psalm, at first glance, it might be daunting to us to think of it. And so what we have to do is we have to ask the question, is this psalm meant to be a barrier to fellowship with God, or is it meant to be a gateway into fellowship with God? In other words, are we to read these 10 attributes, say to ourselves, let's see how I measure up to these 10. Find all of our failures, all of our shortcomings, all of our flaws, and say to ourselves, I guess I don't have fellowship with the true and living God. Or is there something here that is to give us hope and encouragement that as we walk in these things, though imperfectly, we are approaching and walking with and enjoying God. And I think that after considering all 10 of these practices, it might be easy for us to conclude that we don't measure up and therefore have no real fellowship with God, but that would be the wrong conclusion. We can dispense with that view that this is a barrier to God because of a lot of reasons, the gospel for one, but especially because of the purpose of the Psalms and their historical usage in Israel. Uh, The Psalms were not meant to push God's people away from God. The Psalms were written and recorded in order to draw people into a relationship with God. So God doesn't want this Psalm to be something that pushes us away from him, causes us to walk in condemnation and feel that we could not have fellowship with him. And Israel, they would have used the song in a preparatory sense. Uh, They would have used this song as part of their entrance liturgy. On their way up to Jerusalem to worship God, they would have prayed and sung this song and others like it as a way to inspect their souls for worship. The people of Israel, the real believers, they understood that the only way that we can approach God is because of the sacrifice, because of the day of atonement, because God has made a way to cover and wash us of our sins. 
I was just actually reading a book the other day about the book of Leviticus, and the author was making the case that the central chapter of the book of Leviticus is actually the central chapter of the entire Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, that everything works up to the middle of Leviticus and works down from the middle of Leviticus. And at the middle of Leviticus is the Day of Atonement. It's like everything is pointing to we need the blood, we need a sacrifice, we need an intercessor, we need someone to make us right with the living God. And the people of Israel were conscious of that. They weren't singing this song thinking to themselves, if I do number one, if I do number two, if I do number three, if I do all these things, I am going to be approved in God's sight. I don't know where that little song came from. I'm super sorry about that one, especially the if I do number two part. (laughs) But they were conscious We're going to worship God, so we need to take a moment to inspect our progress. The last time we were up here at the temple, how were our lives going? And now that we're going again to worship him, what is our progress? Are we still committed to the living God? This should not be a big adjustment or shock for us on this side of the cross. Paul said in writing to the Corinthian church, that when we take communion, the bread and the cup, we should allow for a moment of inspection in our hearts. Uh, This is a part of the Christian life. So the savvy Jesus follower knows that only Jesus perfectly lived the 10 attributes listed in this song. Only Jesus was worthy of entering the Father's house on his merit alone. Only Jesus needed no sacrifice. Jesus always passed the inspection, but he became the sacrifice so that all who believe in him could come boldly into God's presence. No amount of self-inspection or examination could ever gain any of us true friendship with God. Righteousness before God cannot be earned. It must be received. It must be given to us from the righteousness of Christ. He stands in our place and he gives it to us if we will receive it. But, 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 I think it's this consciousness found in gospel people of Jesus' finished work for us that could easily endanger our understanding of this psalm. Because of the totality of the gospel, because Jesus did all these things on our behalf, we might dismiss the self-examination of this song as a vestigial portion of God's word, as useful to you as your appendix is useful to you, Uh, something outdated, something that the people of Israel on that side of the cross, the wrong side of the cross needed, but that we no longer need. But that would be the wrong conclusion. If we conclude something like that, we fall into one of the two errors that Christians often make, two extremes. On one hand, we might overemphasize our open access to God so much that we never take time to consider our progress, and that's what this psalm is promoting. But the New Testament seems to suggest that we must take moments to take inventory of our lives. Listen to some of the things that the New Testament authors, the apostles wrote. 
Paul said in Ephesians 4, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Ephesians 4, verse 1. How can we know whether we're walking worthily unless we pause and look in the mirror and ask questions as we're searching out the word of God? Ephesians 5, verse 1, Paul went on to say, be imitators of God. That takes thought and consideration, the the building of a life to point in a specific direction. Paul said it this way in Philippians 2, verse 12. He said, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. What does that mean? That means that when you believe in Jesus, salvation is deposited into your body, into your soul. You're righteous before God. But now it's time for us to walk that out, to sanctify, to grow, to be transformed by the Spirit. James said it this way. Be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Peter said it like this, be holy for God is holy. He went on to say in 2 Peter chapter 1 that we should make every effort to supplement our faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. He said, if these qualities are yours and increasing, they will keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Whoever lacks these qualities, however, is so nearsighted, he says, that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. All of those passages indicate that introspection and examination is important in the Christian life. Passages like these help us avoid the error of a flippant or casual relationship with the living God. I think there's a reason why God demonstrated himself as a fire to Moses in Exodus. The the question would be, how can we get close to fire? God's holiness, his glory, his power, his eminence displayed. God is holy And though the righteousness of Christ is imputed into our account by faith, God is looking for us to progress and grow. And this growth, it benefits us in so many ways. It benefits our world in so many ways. So we're wise to respect God and consider our progress. But there is a mistake on the other side of things. We might overemphasize God's holiness to the point that we feel fellowship and friendship with him is impossible. We might look at a passage like this and feel I could never measure up and paralyzed by an unholy terror of God, we might become like the man in Jesus's parable who did not invest his master's money but hid it in a handkerchief in the ground because he felt that his master was severe and ruthless, paralyzed before God, unwilling to grow with and before God because we're afraid of him. So we should neither use this passage dismissively by simply attributing it all to Christ, nor should we become paralyzed by it and assume that we could never partake of God because we can't live up to his standard. Instead, we should rejoice that Jesus fulfilled the law for us, but allow his grace and holiness to springboard us into a life responding to him. Paul said it this way to Titus. He said, the grace of God trains God's people 
to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, people who are zealous for good works. That's what grace, properly understood, does in a person's life. I had an opportunity yesterday to honor uh, an important man in my life. It was his 80th birthday. And I shared with him that in my observation, there are three types of men. There are men who say, look at me and what I have done and accomplished. They're very impressed with themselves. There are other men who are very in tune with their own faults and shortcomings and the pain and hurt that they've caused people. And they don't say, look at me. They say, don't look at me. They hide themselves. But then there's a third category of man who says, look at my God. Look at his grace that he has given to me in successes and in failures. My God has been with me in all of it. Look to and celebrate him. Person who gets that grace, they are propelled into growth with the Lord. Now part of this growth process is to take a grace-oriented look in the mirror. Not to be decimated by our faults. Jesus loves us and died for us. But we don't have to ignore our faults either. In fact, I want to say it like this. Uh, for the Christian, for the believer, the Spirit of God is inside of you. You're a Jesus person. Ignoring your progress is actually not even possible. Uh, there's that show, that Star Wars show, The Mandalorian. I'm sure many of you guys have seen it or watched it. And in the show, the central character is a bounty hunter named Din Djarin. And when he catches someone who has a bounty on them, he has this classic line. He says, I can bring you in warm or I can bring you in cold. And it's his way of saying we could do this the easy way or we could do this the hard way. I could bring you in voluntarily or I could put you in a body bag. The choice is yours, but we're gonna do this one way or another. And I think that's the reality when it comes to self-examination in the Christian life. It's going to happen. The question is, will we do it the easy way or will we do it the hard way? Will we hunger and thirst for righteousness and be filled like Jesus said in Matthew chapter five? Or will we self-inspect from the belly of the fish like Jonah did? Either way, for God's people, it's going to happen. So we might as well bring our bodies before the Lord and say, Lord, would you show me who I am? Because I want to grow in you. Okay, that's really the bulk of my sermon today. I was just taught you the first verse uh, because I wanted to build a case for self-examination. I think this is an important part of the Christian life to, to, to pause and take inventory before the Lord. And I wanna spend the rest of our time though just giving you four categories uh, for self-examination that the psalm suggests to us. There are 10 attributes, but they seem to be organized in four categories. Uh, each sentence in the remaining part of the psalm starts with those who, and so you just take those four sentences and you can see the categories that David had in mind. And as I explain them, I'm gonna then offer to you some suggested questions that you can ask yourself that will help you in the process of your self-examination. So the first category that I want you to see for self-examination is the category number one of our actions, our actions number one. Uh, notice in verse two, David said, those 
who lead blameless lives and do what is right, speaking the truth from sincere hearts. And again, this is an answer to a question. Who gets to go to the holy hill? Who gets to dwell with God in his sanctuary? Who gets to experience the living God? Well, those who lead blameless lives and do what is right, speaking the truth from sincere hearts. Now, you might not pick up on this right away, but when David writes that sentence, he is alluding to a multi-directional uh, relationship with God. He's talking about our relationship with others, our relationship with God, and our relationship with the self. With others, he says, this person, notice first, they lead blameless lives. That means that other people can't look into this person's life and blame them. Hey, you cheated me. Hey, you lied to me. Hey, you didn't keep your commitments to me. Hey, you did this to me. You stole from me. The, uh, they can't receive that blame. It doesn't stick to them because they're not guilty of it. Uh, secondly, there's a relationship with God because it says, and they do what is right. What does that mean? That means that this person has gotten their standard for living, not from inside their hearts, but from someone else. There's an outside creator of what is right, and this person is abiding by it. And of course, since this person is in the Psalms, right smack dab in the middle of the Old Testament, our assumption is what is right for this person is what God has said in his word. So they're in right standing with God. They're obeying God. They're trying to follow God. But then also they have a great relationship internally with themselves because he says at the end of verse two, speaking the truth from sincere hearts. Uh, you know how it is. We can so easily lie to ourselves, can't we? Uh, but this person, they won't go there. They're allowing that real, true, honest examination to occur, and they won't allow themselves to be self-deceived. They allow God's truth to train them. To put it in New Testament terminology, this person is walking in the light. John said it this way in 1 John Verse one, uh, chapter one, verse five through six, he said, this is the message we have heard from God and proclaim to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. This person, in other words, is not perfect, but they're striving to be in the light, to treat others well, to abide by God's dictates and to be honest with themselves about it all. So, so here's some questions for holy self-examination that might help us to inspect our actions, okay, our actions. The first question that I'd suggest is to ask the question, does my calendar look like it belongs to a person devoted to Jesus? Does my calendar look like it belongs to a person devoted to Jesus? Now, I, I don't know what you're like with uh, a calendar. I'm a, I'm, I, I, I love calendars. I, I schedule myself, I, I schedule everything out, you know? So if I'm going to have uh, time reading the Bible and praying in the morning, I'll put that in my calendar. If, I, if I'm going to have a time hanging out with my wife, I'll, I'll put that in my calendar. If I'm going to have a time hanging out with the family or hanging out with one of my kids, I'll put that in my calendar. And I promise you, I'm a I'm a ton of fun, but I really like my calendar. Some of you guys here are like, oh, calendar? Like, I open up my calendar, it says August. That's my calendar, okay? <laughs> so so what, I'm, what I'm really saying with this question is the question, your time. If you were to see your time laid out in life, does it look like a, a, a life that is devoted to Jesus? Is there time for service, 
Is there time for the Lord? Is there time for Christian fellowship, church going, community in Christ? Uh, Does my calendar look like it belongs to a person devoted to Jesus? Another question you could ask is, what is the next area of my character the Holy Spirit wants to address? What is the next area of my character the Holy Spirit wants to address? I've found that the godly people that I know, that I've seen and witnessed and watched over the years, they tend to have an idea of the next thing that God is trying to deal with in their character, in their soul, in who they are. And uh, I don't know if this is God's mercy or grace or whatever, or maybe it's just like you guys can't handle anything more than this, but I'm very thankful that when we start walking with the Lord, the Lord doesn't just give us like the long list of here's all, the, here's the 987 things we're gonna be working on over the next 60 years, you know, kind of thing. It just seems to be this one at a time kind of thing, and a lot of times they're repeating over the years But I found that godly people, they're able to identify the next thing that the Spirit is trying to work on. So that's a great question. Another question is, are there any areas of my life that would stumble other believers? You know, things that I'm doing that if they knew about them, it would really trip them up and even cause harm in their lives. Or a last question, is there something in my life I continually justify to myself that I shouldn't justify to myself. Uh, Is there a way that I've self-deceived and told myself this thing is okay in my life? I heard the story recently of a, a true story of a pastor who had been committing adultery for many years and had finally gotten caught, and he said in a moment of candor and honesty, every weekend I would repent, every weekend I would confess, and then I would go into the pulpit, and I'd feel and experience God's power, and I would assume God is still with me, and I'd pick it all back up again on Monday. We can't play that game. We gotta be a people who say, it's not about that, it's about living and walking in a holy and righteous way before God. Is there something that I'm quietly justifying that I should not justify? Now at this point, some of you might be saying, this all sounds like just so like practical and just like gritty and like day to day. And maybe you were hoping, you know, that Christianity would be a thing where it's like it's like a magic wand experience. Like you come in one way and it's like, voila, you're different. Uh, And this sounds so daily and like a wrestling match and all of that. And that is mostly the way that it is. We live in a time where we love the idea of the quick success. You know, we're the generation that thinks like, if I do a daily cold plunge, I'm going to become an Olympian or something like that. Like it takes work, it takes effort, it takes, you know, all of these things. And so that's the first category I wanted you to see, our actions. Okay, number two, second category of four Uh, for self-examination is our words, our words. People who worship in God's sanctuary and go into God's presence are, he says in verse three, those who refuse to gossip or harm their neighbors or speak evil of their friends. James said it like this in James one. He said, if anyone thinks he's religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. The person that this psalm describes has at least to a degree tamed their tongue. They're careful not to gossip or harm anyone with their words, especially their neighbors. 
Now, you know in the New Testament that Jesus defined neighbor very broadly. He didn't think of a neighbor as someone you shared a lot line with or an apartment patio with. He defined the quintessential neighbor with a a parable about a good Samaritan taking care of a random stranger on a wilderness pass. So neighbor harm or gossip isn't only about the person that you know, that you share a lot line with. Jesus thought of neighbor care much more broadly. And the righteous person, this psalm says, will not speak harmfully of or harm his neighbor in any way. Nor will he, it says in verse three, speak evil of his friends. Now that one sounds easy at first glance. Like why would I wanna say bad things about my friends? I I understand like don't gossip about other people and enemies and all of that, but there's something about the human heart. It's pride that induces jealousy and envy so that so often the people we say the worst things about are the people that we actually love the most. But this person, they work to keep their words continually in check. They adhere to Paul's admonition in Ephesians chapter four when he said, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. Words that are either building up or imparting grace into a person's life. Now for holy self-examination, here's some questions we might ask to help us inspect our words. One question you could ask is, when I'm with close friends or family, people I'm comfortable with that I can kind of just relax with, do I become comfortable saying negative things about other people? Uh, Another question you could ask is, when I learn privileged information, something that's to be held in confidence, do I share it with other people that I shouldn't share it with, or do I really, 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 really want to share it with other people? Another question that you could ask is, how do I feel when I watch someone experience a win that I want to experience but haven't experienced yet? What's happening within? And then a last question I would suggest is, do I correct self-talk, things that I'm saying inwardly or outwardly that are not full of faith and hope and love but instead are full of fear and doom and hatred? I think we need to, many of us, get better at this part of life, not not allowing the fearful, doom-oriented, hate-filled words to come out of our mouths unchecked or exist in our hearts unchecked. We've got to correct that speech. When we were up at the lake these uh, last weeks, uh, like I said, I, I like to bring, we bring these inflatable uh, paddle boards. And uh, I got them a few years ago at Costco because at Costco, if anything, if, you, if, it, if something breaks, you just bring it back. So I was like, yeah, paddle boards. And so one of my paddle boards this year, it got a leak. And so every day I'd have to fill it up again. And so finally one day I was like, I gotta find out where this leak is coming from. It was just a slow leak. I found the leak and I knew that there was a patch kit that had been provided 
provided uh, with the paddle board. So when we got back to the house, you know, I got out the patch kit, I opened it all up, had all the things laid out, and then I opened up the directions. And uh, it was literally, it said, step one, buy patch glue. <laughs> that was the first step. I'm up in the mountains, like it's too late, you know. Like I, I needed to do this back when I was at home, but that was step one. And uh, so I just put everything back and said, well, we're just gonna have a deflated paddleboard on this trip because apparently I didn't do step one. And, and I, I was just thinking about that and I was thinking, you know, for so many of us, our words are a problem. It's kind of step one for a lot of us. Maybe I could even say step one, get some glue. <laughs> We've gotta watch our words and the way that we speak. Okay, the third category for self-examination is our attitudes. People who worship in God's sanctuary and go into God's presence are, he says in verse four, those who despise flagrant sinners and honor the faithful followers of the Lord and keep their promises even when it hurts. Okay, all of these statements, these phrases in verse four, they have to do with the attitude of our hearts towards things like wickedness, godliness, and ourselves. Uh, he says our, our attitude about wickedness, he says, you know, the, this person, they despise flagrant sinners. Some of you might say, well, that sounds rather extreme or rather hateful. I want you to remember the context that David was in. He lived among God's people, the people of Israel. He lived among people who were claiming God is our king, God is our leader, he's, he's the one we're following. And whenever David saw people like that claiming to belong to God, claiming to be followers of God, actually practicing flagrant sin, to him it was a despicable, shameless, shameful thing. Uh, and so he felt that these people had been spiritually compromised. Uh, but on the other hand, David did have a kind of person that he thought this person does admire. He says, secondly, when it comes to faithful followers of the Lord, this man honors them for their devotion. If I could be frank, this is honestly one of the biggest things I felt the Lord speaking to me while I was away. Uh, I think probably reflecting on Pastor Jeff's recent retirement, I've known for many years that he would retire, and I've known for many years that there'd be no way that we could ever replace him individually. But the Lord just began showing me there are so many great men and women, godly men and women in our fellowship, in, in our church, it will take an army of people to replace that one guy, but the army of people is here. And so David, he felt that way. You know, the, the, this person, they honor faithful followers of the Lord. And then when it comes to himself, he says he keeps his promises even when it hurts him to do so. Even when there's great cost at keeping his word, he does it. So really what you have here is a guy who says, I'm not gonna idolize the wrong things. I'm not going to appreciate the wrong people. Instead, they agree with James who said, friendship with the world is enmity with God. So for holy self-examination, here's some questions we might ask to help us inspect our attitudes. One question you could ask is, who do I admire most? Who am I intensely interested in? And am I interested in any of those people for the wrong reasons? I think part of what I'm driving at with this question is, comes from the understanding that we live in a, in a celebrity culture 
that is infatuated with celebrity. So you have to ask yourself, who am I admiring? Is there anyone I'm admiring for the wrong reasons? I'm, I'm like building my life on what I see they are and I shouldn't. Another question you could ask is, are the voices I'm building my life upon, are they from faithful Jesus followers? You know, or are we building our lives upon the voices of people who really don't love the Lord, they're not walking with the Lord, might be great people, but they're not faithful Jesus followers. And then another question that we could ask related to keeping our promises when it hurts is, do I make good commitments? And if so, do I keep those commitments no matter what? Do I keep those commitments no matter what? So, th so this person has the right attitude about the right people and the right attitude about the wrong people as well. I was talking to a friend of mine recently who pastors a church in Lima, Peru, Calvary Chapel, Lima. And uh, he was telling me a funny story about a big outreach that they were doing uh, out in a remote part of the country where thousands of people were gathered together and they brought together all these Christian musicians and they were having this big festival. And it was just a ton of fun, but his calling was to evangelize, was to preach the gospel to this large crowd of people. He has a little girl that's just a precious little girl, she's like seven or eight years old, and he said that she was backstage with him and his wife, and she was dancing around during the music and just having a great time, and then the music faded, and they announced him, and he walked out to the platform to go preach the gospel to thousands of people, and he said as he got up from his seat and began walking towards the center of the stage, he heard his little girl say, uh, now the boring part. <laughs> <laughs> I tell that humorous story just to say I think a lot of times we admire the flashy, we admire the entertaining. We would probably do well to be drawn a little bit more to the boring, faithful, steady godly people that the Lord has put around us. Okay, the fourth category for self-examination I wanna bring out and then we'll take communion together is our concerns, uh, number, uh, verse five, our concerns. Uh, let's read it together in verse five. He says, those who lend money without charging interest and who cannot be bribed to lie about the innocent. Okay, what this person is, is their concern uh, is uh, demonstrated through the way that they spend their money. Uh, when it says there that this person uh, lends money without charging interest, uh, we have to read that with Old Testament glasses on. Uh, it's not that lending as an investment strategy is a sinful principle, but in that era and in that place in Israel, it involved pretty often the exploitation of Israel's poor. They'd been assigned a certain portion of land and a heritage and all of that. So if they needed to have a loan, it meant that they were struggling. They were in poverty. To be in need uh, was likely an indication you were in trouble and interest would only make it worse. So God had said to the people of Israel, you can't do that. So the type of person that lends money without charging interest in return was the type of person who cared about the poor. But they also cared about the innocent. They cared about justice 
uh, because they couldn't be bribed about it. They couldn't use their position or their wealth to pervert justice. They wouldn't want to do that. This type of person is concerned uh, about everyone who is in need of justice, especially those who are not well positioned to gain it for themselves because of their poverty. So this person does not let materialism blind them to the hardships and pains that people endure. Uh, This person agrees with James when James said that religion that's pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So for holy self-examination, here's some questions we might ask to impact our concerns. One, One question we could ask is, do my finances reflect care for people living in poverty, people for whom life is a challenge and is painful? Do my finances reflect a care for them? Another question we could ask is, what are my internal feelings about people living in poverty? What what kind of talk do I have inwardly when I encounter someone in poverty? Or perhaps conversely, What kind of internal feelings do I have about somebody living in abundance? Because there can be a prejudice there in that direction as well. And then another question is, do I have relationships with people outside my socioeconomic sphere? Am I only comfortable with people who are kind of making around the same as I make and living the same kind of lifestyle as I live? Or am I able to be in friendships and relationships with people in either direction of me uh, financially? Now, the person who lives under the general analysis of this song, look at the last line of the psalm and we'll end today. David says they will never be moved. This analysis before God Uh, leads them to become a pillar in their church and community. Uh, Their lives become solid and flourishing because they've asked hard questions repeatedly about their lives. Uh, Years ago, Christina and I, we had this small tree in our, our front yard. Every home in our neighborhood was built at the same time, and the developer put a tree in the front yard of every single home. And uh, as once we moved into the neighborhood, uh, I noticed over the years that everybody else's tree was really doing great, but my tree was not doing so hot. And I didn't know what was happening. I, we live on the edge of a forest and all the trees out there seemed like they were doing really great. And I, so I'm like, what's going on with our little tree? I tried different things to figure it out. And I just figured, well, we got a bad one. We got a bad tree. And uh, so one day, a gardener was uh, in the neighborhood, and I, I pulled him aside, and I'm like, this is my shot. I'm going to find out, you know, what's going on. So I just explained the complicated situation that I was in, the history of this tree, the things that I had tried, and stuff like that. And once I was done explaining to him the impossible gardening predicament that I was in, uh, he looked at me, and he asked, he said, well, have you watered it? That had never crossed my mind, ever. I'm like, there's all these trees out here. They're doing it. (laughs) Nobody's watering them. What about my tree? He's like, no, these are the kind of trees. You gotta actually water these trees. So uh, we got rid of our tree. (laughs) Look, we, we all want flourishing lives. But from the Christian perspective, Human flourishing is directly connected to God. 
If our actions towards others, God, and ourselves are awash in sin, how can we expect the water of the Spirit to have its desired effect? If our words are filled with slander and jealousy, how can we expect our friendship with God to produce abundance? If our attitudes are misplaced and we idolize the wrong people and demonize righteous people, how will peace ever come into our lives? And if our concern is never for the vulnerable or innocent, isn't it clear evidence that we've not walked with God, but we've just walked with ourselves and our own opinions? So what kind of person experiences the living God? The answer of this psalm and the the scripture around it tells us that the kind of person who experienced God is first made righteous, clean, and perfect or holy before God by receiving the righteousness of Jesus. He died and rose in our place so that our old lives would die and we could have newness in him. But after receiving that positional righteousness before God, the person who experiences God continues to allow spirit led, grace-fueled examination into their lives. And as their actions, words, and attitudes and concerns are brought into further submission to God, all by the power and aid of the Spirit, they flourish. They will never be moved. They have experienced the living God. Thank you for listening. If you would like more teachings and information about Calvary Monterey, please visit calvary.com. You can also find books, teachings through the Bible, and articles from our lead pastor at nateholdridge.com. Thanks again for tuning in. See you next week.